This is Vadeep Tov, and welcome to Oral Max Facts. I have Dr. Harper with me here on the show again to continue to talk about perioperative anesthesia complications. If you have not had a chance to check out our episode 3 in Laryngosm, make sure you go back and listen to it. It was a really well-done lecture. Um, Dr. Harper, thank you for joining us again today. You're welcome. It's my pleasure to be here. So as we continue to talk about crisis management with anesthesia, I wanted to focus on bronchospasm today. First, we'll start with the definition of bronchospasm, followed by the predisposing factors for bronchospasm. Then we'll discuss science associated and how do you manage it in office or in the operating room. And then we'll end with a case discussion. So Dr. Harper, quite literally speaking, bronchospasm is constriction of the bronchial muscles, right? Causing narrowing and obstruction of the airway. Correct. It's, it's, a, it's a hyperreactive spasm of the smooth muscle, primarily in the smaller airways of the lungs. As the airways get smaller, you have less cartilage and more smooth muscle. And there appear to be two different mechanisms that play a role in the generation of, of bronchospasm. As in laryngospasm, there's a, a, a vaguely mediated uh, component to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you get a hyper-responsiveness of the airways, uh, especially in the lighter stages of anesthesia. Uh, and this can be to chemical or mechanical irritation. Uh, which can trigger the bronchospasm. Uh-huh. Uh, secondly, there's a, some inflammatory mediators such as histamine that can contribute to the bronchospasm as seen in um, anaphylaxis. Um, so there are a couple of different ways that this can uh, precipitate or occur. Okay, and there's also some pharmacologic factors too, Absolutely. Right? Uh, the number of medications um, that can trigger a um, bronchospasm, including um, the non-selective beta blockers. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the uh, drugs used to reverse uh, paralytics can trigger a bronchospasm in susceptible patients. Uh, so other things to be aware of as you look at medications and patient susceptibility to, to take into consideration when selecting drugs and medications for these folks. Mm-hmm. And... Um, do you normally typically see it during induction or it's mo- probably most uncommon during induction, but you can mm-hmm. see it at any phase during the maintenance phase and the recovery phase. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you think about uh, induction of anesthesia in the OR setting, you're actually putting a foreign body in the airway. And if you have right. a reactive airway, if that patient is not in a deep enough plane of uh, anesthesia, mm-hmm. you're going to irritate it. You're going to trigger a bronchospasm. So. Right. Can you please help us understand in more depth? the predisposing factors that are responsible for development of perioperative bronchospasm. So many of the triggers for bronchospasm are similar to what we discussed with laryngospasm, mm-hmm. but especially when you think about acute and chronic airway diseases, especially asthma, COPD, they're frequently involved mm-hmm. in patients with who develop a bronchospasm. Especially with kids, think about uh, acute airway infections, upper and lower airway infections may pre- predispose them to bronchospasm. And you get into the discussion with kids with a uh, or respiratory tract infection, how long do right. you wait? Uh, certainly a, a child with a history of asthma and an upper respiratory tract infection, mm-hmm. I'm going to be much more cautious uh, with the concern that I may trigger uh, bronchospasm. When you think about adults, certainly asthma is a common diagnosis in adults, as well as a, a COPD, both uh, bronchitis and emphysema. Right. Those mm-hmm. folks tend to be prone to it. There's discussion of Samter's triad is maybe putting patients at increased risk, which is asthma along, originally described as an aspirin uh, allergy or sensitivity, Mm -hmm. along with nasal polyps, but non-steroidals can also play a role in it. And there is some question, at least some folks have suggested in the literature, that those folks with uh, Samter's triad may be more prone to bronchospasm. 
but certainly mm-hmm. patients allergic uh, rhinitis, uh, history of uh, multiple allergies, you need to be a little bit more concerned about uh, the risk for bronchospasm. As, as with laryngospasm, smoking, both uh, primary and secondhand smoke uh, are both important risk factors. Mm-hmm. Uh, we talked about uh, beta blockers, any medications that release histamine. Uh, think about morphine. Uh, mm-hmm. Some of the uh, paralytics uh, are also will release histamine. And patients who are more susceptible to bronchospasm can trigger bronchospasm in those patients. Um, and interestingly, uh, obesity has been uh, reported to increase the risk of bronchospasm. And whether this is due to undiagnosed asthma with patients complain, who are uh, morbidly obese complaining of being short of breath and mm-hmm. being blamed because they are uh, uh, inactive and they get short of breath because right. uh, metabolically they can't keep up with the, the extra weight versus uh, some other phenomenon. One theory suggests that there are some adipose-derived factors that cause uh, chronic inflammation that lead mm-hmm. to uh, airway inflammation and narrowing. I'm not sure what the true factor is, but there probably are a number of those folks who have undiagnosed uh, asthma uh, that may also put them at risk of bronchospasm intraoperatively. That's a really good point. I feel like asthma also has that relation with obesity and it kind of all goes hand in hand. And also, you know, I personally speaking, I never thought I would have asthma, you know, but moving to Cincinnati, the allergies here has brought this new sensation of allergies in their body. It's interesting because most of the time when you think about asthma, you think of it coming on in childhood, but there are a lot of Mm -hmm. adult onset asthmatics. And while kids tend to grow, can grow out of their asthma, adults tend not to. Right. Uh, And so so certainly something to to think about uh, is is a patient uh, uh, who... With a careful history, you may pick up uh, some shortness of breath exposure to mm-hmm. certain seasonal um, respiratory issues, uh, more right. than just a viral infection that uh, can uh, put them at increased risk of, of, of bronchospasm. Mm-hmm. Can we talk about what what are some of the signs and symptoms that a provider should be able to recognize? Sure. Uh, you know, with open airway versus secured airway, uh, we're talking about two different beasts. So little different avenues to, mm-hmm. uh, as as we start to think about it. Uh, in the office, most of us are doing an open airway technique versus uh-huh. doing an intubation or or an LMA. And so when we think about bronchospasm, we've got a uh, decreased lung compliance. So the lungs become stiffer as you try to ventilate them. Uh, exhalation mm-hmm. becomes prolonged. Uh, and uh, with significant bronchospasm, they tend to get some air trapping. So some of the things that uh, uh, we want to think about when we're doing with it, Open airway, first of all, is this issue just airway difficulty? Is it just a matter of an obstructed airway? Mm-hmm. And so you know, we open the airway. Uh, we need to think about uh, laryngospasm and aspiration with an open airway as potential uh, triggers for uh, difficulty with ventilation, mm-hmm. uh, with uh, decreased ability to, to ventilate a patient. Certainly, um, we'll see uh, increased respiratory efforts. If patients are really working at breathing when um, uh, mm-hmm. they develop a, a bronchospasm. And if we auscultate, we're going to hear wheezing on auscultation mm-hmm. typically. And so with an open airway, those are the kind of things that we think about. The the wheezing is maybe primarily expiratory or it may be inspiratory or expiratory mm-hmm. depending on the severity of uh, bronchial constriction. The wheeze is caused by a passage of the uh, of air through a narrowed airway, and as that airway becomes more narrowed, those sounds may get less and less uh, and may go away. And so, wheezing disappearing sometimes is not a good sign, but it's an indication that things are uh, getting really getting worse. Yeah. And uh, uh, so, you have to keep that in mind. Uh, entitled CO two with an open airway. 
we're, we're not going to see that classic shark finning that you that you see uh, mm-hmm. uh, displayed on a board case uh, yeah. to, <laughs> because uh, we've got sort of mixed air. And so um, we may um, see uh, with severe bronchial spasm, we may not get any registration of entitled CO2 at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, we may see decreased uh, entitled CO2 on a, on a monitor. If we don't have a precordial stethoscope, the first thing we may notice besides uh, increased respiratory effort is that there may be an O2 saturation drop. So mm-hmm. as we start to see that, it's the time to pick up the stethoscope. If you, and it probably makes a case for keeping a precordial stethoscope on uh, right. for patients under anesthesia. Uh, if you've got a secured airway, what you may notice uh, initially is a rapid increase in the peak ins- inspiratory pressures uh, mm-hmm. as the lungs become stiffer due to this bronchoconstriction, and tidal volumes may decrease because of the inability to fully expand the lungs mm-hmm. uh, with each breath uh, delivered by the, the uh, ventilator. Due to the fact that the CO2 has, is delayed in coming out of the narrowed airway, you get a prolonged expiration and you get an upsloping of the uh, entitled CO2 waveform, which gives you that classic shark finning right. as opposed to the marching elephants that you would typically see in a normal healthy person mm-hmm. with their inventory cycle. So as the bronchospasm gets worse, your uh, uh, entitled CO2 waveform may decrease or may disappear altogether, mm-hmm. uh, indicating that you've got a pretty severe bronchoconstriction. If this patient is spontaneously breathing, you may see uh, increased respiratory effort. Uh, as air trapping increases, you may see a hyperinflation of the lungs, although I suspect that's a little harder to see right. uh, on a patient. But certainly that's uh, one of those those things of, that are leading to a uh, dangerous course. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the O2 sat obviously is going to drop as these patients have a, a difficulty time oxygenating, uh, getting air in and out. Mm-hmm. So those are kind of the... the things that I would, would expect that you would typically see. Right. And typically, bronchospasm is also associated with allergic reaction, right? So Can be. May... And, and so so if, as we look at this and we're trying to make our diagnosis of where, where we're going on the pathway, mm-hmm. there's a there's an a allergic pathway and there's a bronchospasm pathway. Right. So along with this bronchospasm, we want to start looking for signs and evidence of, mm-hmm. is this a allergic and anaphylactic type reaction? So we're going to start right. looking for signs of um, cardiovascular collapse, so blood pressure starting to drop, mm-hmm. uh, compensatory tachycardia, trying to keep up with it, look for cutaneous signs such mm-hmm. as hives, uh, uh, rashes, that sort of thing that would take us down a little different pathway in right. the management of these. Yeah. And we can talk about anaphylaxis allergic reaction in our later episodes as well. So now that we know what bronchospasm is, what are the signs to look out for and the predisposing factors? Can we talk about preoperative management of bronchospasm? Sure. Uh, you know, as we talked last time, call out the time when, when you notice something like this is right. happening. Because time is, is critical. The longer they're hypoxic, the more potential risk, the more quickly we need to escalate our treatment mm-hmm. and the management of these folks. Um, uh, so um, in a patient um, with a secured airway, endotracheal tube in, first thing we want to do, whether they're um, secure endotracheal tube or with a, uh, a just uh, open airway, is turn up the FiO2 to 100%. Turn mm-hmm. up our oxygen delivery uh, if we're using a wall. Uh, unit with a, uh, a patient with an open airway, turn it up high so that we can get some ventilation or oxygenation, even uh, if they're getting uh, a little bit of uh, oxygen in. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing that we want to do if 
if this is a patient with a security airway, is we want to switch from uh, ventilator machine assisted to bag the patient. So change mm-hmm. them over to bag uh, to sort of eliminate the, the ventilator part of this because that could certainly be in our differential diagnosis as we're thinking about why is this patient uh, mm-hmm. uh, having issues with breathing. Uh, is it something with a machine? Uh, and there are a number of case reports where things have gone wrong with the, the ventilator that have actually mm-hmm. been the cause of the wheezing and the, the increased airway resistance. Right. And, and I think, uh, so we've turned up our FiO2. We've bagged the patient. By bagging the patient, uh, mm-hmm. we're going to get a feel for lung compliance. You know, is this a stiff lung? Are we having trouble getting air in? Also, uh, the other thing that we want to do is uh, check the blood pressure about now because, again, thinking about pathways that we're going to go down. Mm-hmm. Is this a patient who's developing anaphylaxis? So we've got a bronchospasm in relation to cardiovascular events and the blood pressure is right. dropping. Yeah. Uh, and it may affect how we our next steps and how we manage things. Mm-hmm. So um, we need to remember that not everything that wheezes is bronchospasm too. Mm-hmm. So uh, certainly that's going to be one of the first things that come into our mind. Is this a patient who's got a bronchospasm? Is this an asthmetic episode attack? Mm-hmm. Uh, is this a patient with history? So, we, so those things we need to anticipate ahead of time. You know, and other things that can cause wheezing uh, in a patient who has an obstructed airway, we start thinking about, are there problems with the endotracheal tube? Uh, is mm-hmm. it partially obstructed? Right. You know, in the OR, this time of the year, intern resting is on the endotracheal <laughs> tube and it gets kinked. Think about a mucus plug blocking the endotracheal tube or, or right. the large airways. Think about a tube that's gone too far in that's abutting against the carina mm-hmm. and uh, is uh, causing uh, laryngospasm mm-hmm. uh, based on being a little light with the anesthesia or a right main stem intubation. We've pushed it too far and it's gone down the right main stem mm-hmm. and triggered. Perniated endotracheal tube cuff certainly is in a differential, less of an issue these days, but, but certainly something to think about is, mm-hmm. is that cuff overinflated and is herniated and causing some obstruction of the endotracheal tube. So, uh, as we've turned up our O2, we're reading for the patient, uh, we want to check our tube position, consider, we think it's a little deep, consider deflating the cuff, pulling back just a little bit, uh, right. a centimeter, uh, reinflating and, and check. Think about uh, other things that can cause uh, a wheezing. Uh, think about pulmonary edema, certainly. Is this a patient at risk for some sort of left-sided heart failure? And now we've suddenly got uh, acute pulmonary edema. Uh, aspiration. Uh, was the cuff up? Uh, right. Is this an open airway? Could the patient aspirated a uh, uh, gastric contents? Mm-hmm. Foreign body in the airway, besides the endotracheal tube. Teeth have been knocked down the airway uh, in an attempt to intubate the patient. Was that recognized? Did the crown pop off before as before the uh, uh, those kinds of things happen? So certainly Mm -hmm. things to think about your differential diagnosis. Uh, Tension pneumothorax probably a less common cause, but certainly something to think about. Mm -hmm. Uh, Patient with uh, significant emphysema, nitrous oxide. Those young healthy patients, uh, males, tall, thin who seem mm-hmm. to be prone to uh, blebs in their lungs that can uh, rupture and create a, a, a pneumothorax. So so certainly in your differential, part auscultating, you know, do you have bilateral equal breath sounds with mm-hmm. wheezing on both sides, or do you just have one lung where things or you hear some wheezing, then you start thinking about do you have some issue uh, mm-hmm. where either something's gone into the lung, do you have a main stem uh, intubation, do you have a pneumothorax that you might have to treat or deal with, and pulmonary embolism can certainly uh, cause altered breath sounds, diminished right. breath sounds. So if the patient is awake, how would you go about managing? So, you know, if if we've got a patient who's mildly sedated and, and who's, who's developing respiratory difficulties and I'm very wheezy, I'm going to manage this similar to an asthmatic attack. We're going to, if they've got their own 
meter dose inhaler with albuterol. Mm -hmm. We'll have them take a few puffs with that, or uh, we do have uh, capability to deliver albuterol by nebulizer, mm -hmm. uh, which may be a more effective way to, to get it into the airway. And repeat as needed. Uh, kind of mm -hmm. monitor the patient, stop what we're doing, pack off the wound, right. you know, right. and, the and make, right. make the decision, is this the time to, we call it quits today, mm -hmm. uh, depending on the patient's response. And then uh, look for signs of other things that could be causing me. In right. particular, think about anaphylaxis. Mm -hmm. Make some decisions about uh, how severe is this? Is this something that we need to call in the cavalry and bring in 911 to transfer them? transport to the hospital, or is this something that they responded to the inhalers, and, mm -hmm. and we just uh, call it quits to, yeah. to fight another day. And one point I want to make is um, with inhalers, um, especially albuterol, you can connect, you make sure you know how to connect it to, yes. your, to your MV bag or yeah. to your face mask. As we were talking earlier, in trying to take off the little white uh, <laughs> spacer, first time I tried to demonstrate for my staff how to do that, I broke the stem off the albuterol uh, in, uh, meter dose inhaler, and so suddenly I had one that was useless. Uh, so uh, it's something worth taking a look at ahead of time. You mm -hmm. need to make sure that you have the connector to connect it to because yeah. uh, if you've got a patient who's obtunded trying to give them puffs uh, when you've got nothing to connect it to, it's mm -hmm. it become much more challenging and maybe totally ineffective. So so you need to make sure you have the right equipment in place and, right. uh, uh, to be able to, to rescue this patient. And just to quickly talk about the doses. You can start with about four to eight puffs for an adult versus sure. two to four for exactly. pediatric population. And, and repeat as necessary. Right. If you've got somebody who's got fairly significant bronchospasms, then you want to um, to repeat as necessary. Mm -hmm. And what they need is the uh, beta-2 agonist in the lungs. So uh, really important to uh, give enough mm -hmm. that, that you're going to be a, have an effective dose. And also at the same time, consider deepening the anesthesia. Sure. And, um, and again, ketamine or and, handy. and as we're looking at it, if we've got somebody who's light and talking to me but having trouble breathing, I'm probably going to be a little hesitant to, to deepen that patient versus mm -hmm. a patient who's obtunded. Uh, then I may think about deepening the anesthetic. Okay. Uh, uh, just because if if they're, they're responsive, I'm thinking stage one anesthesia, which was probably my planned Safer, place right. to be. Uh, and so this is a patient I may want to think about lighter than deeper mm -hmm. and monitor uh, and, and maybe uh, calling it quits for the day. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and again, if it's a patient with a known history of asthma, uh, one of the questions is, are they medically optimized? Is this somebody mm -hmm. who uh, uh, needs to advance their, their therapy? And those are all part of that patient workup uh, uh -huh. uh, of, of, of a patient with pre-existing lung disease. Uh, uh, are they medically optimized? Uh, is mm -hmm. the bottom line? And if they're not, then do we get them medically optimized before we proceed so that mm -hmm. we decrease the risk for the patient? Let's just say um, patient is deeper and you already tried your albuterol. It doesn't work. At what point do you consider pushing up an aphrin? So, so what I would do, if I've got somebody who's who's obtunded and not intubated patient, then I'm going to, uh, in a, and, I, and I'm hearing wheezing, I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to, to turn the, mat, the oxygen up to 100%. I'm going to hand ventilate to get a feel for where they are, check their blood pressure. If I'm going to consider deepening anesthetic, and, and part of deepening the anesthetic, uh, do I give propofol? Probably, mm -hmm. depending on who you read, um, uh, mild uh, bronchodilator versus certainly not bronchospastic, as some of the mm -hmm. uh, 
sulfur-based uh, barbiturates versus ketamine, which has certainly been described as a, as a bronchodilator and, and right. used in status. So I'm going to check the blood pressure. If they've got a normal blood pressure, I'm probably going to deepen a little bit with propofol just as if it's for a laryngeal spasm mm-hmm. uh, to take out that uh, hopefully vagus uh, pathway and consider deepening a little bit. Mm-hmm. And then uh, we'll try albuterol. Biggest thing about hooking the albuterol up to a breathing circuit or hooking up to a bag valve vast is you're going to get rain out. So uh, mm-hmm. as you get those puffs, as opposed to a patient who can cooperate, inhale uh, and take those four right. to eight breaths in and, and maximally get it in the lungs, mm-hmm. you're going to end up with a lot of this precipitating out onto the, the, uh, right. the plastic tubing. Probably I would consider eight to ten doses kind of as a starting dose, okay. uh, and I would repeat that uh, as needed. If I'm not seeing any response with that, then the question is, is do you go to the to beer guns and, and look at um, going with epinephrine? And again, if, I, if I'm if i seeing a drop in blood pressure, if I'm thinking that this could be anaphylaxis, I'm okay. going early to epinephrine. And so if I've got an IVN, uh, I'm going to give uh, bolus, but it's a very small bolus. Uh, when you think about there's in your crash carts, you probably have one to a thousand and one to ten thousand. Mm-hmm. One to a thousand, think about as being an IM sub Q kind of dose versus one to right. ten thousand being the intravenous, uh, mm-hmm. so that you can titrate. But to give ten to twenty micrograms is kind of a starting dose, is what people talk about, or ten to a, up to a hundred mics at a, at a time. Again, mm-hmm. you're going to start low and increase, knowing that there are some side effects. Uh, you're going to have to deal with tachycardia. You're going to have to mm-hmm. deal with maybe increased blood pressure uh, so you ha- and maybe some arrhythmia. So start right. low and, and escalate your dose. But when you think about a 1 to 10,000 solution, you're thinking about a tenth of a cc to mm-hmm. give 10 mics. So uh, it's a very small doses. So you titrate it uh, based on the response. You can uh, dilute it and uh, run it by infusion pump also. Again, those are mechanics and numbers that you need to have worked out ahead of time, right. written down, because you'll never think of it if no. you're trying yeah. to calculate uh, while an emergency is going on. If you lose an IV, treat it as if you had anaphylaxis mm-hmm. and you have an IV and you think about giving IM uh, epinephrine right. and you're going to give 0.3 to 0.5 in an adult and you're going to give half that dose in a kid. Uh, mm-hmm. To, uh, to get the beta 2 effects, but you're also going to trade yeah. off the other effects that you get with that, including increased heart rate, increased blood pressure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, most of us don't even keep EpiPen in our crash carts, right? Yeah, because of the cost of it. Right. Uh, and again, you need to have that figured out in your head. Uh, mm-hmm. If you're not going to, if you're not going to keep an EpiPen, you need to have, when it comes time to draw it up, do you have the syringe available? Mm-hmm. How much do you give? And you're going to need to, to give a one cc syringe of a one to one milligram uh, in a cc, you're mm-hmm. going to have to give a 0.3 uh, to 0.5 IM. Uh, mm-hmm. So, so you need to f- figure that out ahead of time. And you need to have that available because uh, anaphylaxis is one of those things that can go down the hill in, in a very very quick fashion. And for an intubated patient, if you have really severe bronchospasm. Um, you could also give anticholinergics like glycopyrrolate. Absolutely, yeah. And so, uh, glycopyrrolate probably less um, uh, cardiac uh, tachycardia with the glycopyrrolate lasts mm-hmm. longer. Uh, so probably would be the first choice of drug. I would think about glycopyrrolate too if I had somebody who was wheezing mm-hmm. and I was going to deepen them with ketamine. I would probably not take the chance. I'd probably go ahead and give them. Although routinely when I use ketamine. I don't give glycopyrrolate, but if I had somebody in right. a ringospasm, I would, and I was going to use uh, ketamine, uh, and then I would, uh, would pick the glycopyrrolate. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, atropine will last 30 minutes, while glycopyrrolate will last 
for two to four hours. So right. you get more bang for your buck, so to right. speak. And also just quickly talk about the dosages. You do 0.2 milligrams of glycoparola versus 0.4 of atropine. And some people would say go to 0.5 of atropine. I think that mm -hmm. there's it's sort of that parado paradoxical <laughs> response, supposedly. And I think the ACLS has gone to 0.5 mm -hmm. of atropine rather than 0.4 milligrams, if I remember right. And uh, also to keep the time of onset in mind, right? Yeah. Because sometimes it can take longer. At what point do you consider glucocorticoids? Uh, if I've got somebody who's who's having a rigor spasm, I'm going to think about glucocorticoids early. And, and in fact, if I've got an asthmatic, uh, I'll pre-treat them uh, with Decadron prior to start. Mm -hmm. uh, other effects, I hope to uh, uh, maybe less nausea, pre-treat them ahead of time. I've had folks who were asthmatics in, in consultation with a physician. We've actually started patients on, uh, black, uh, on glucocorticoids a week ahead of time uh, mm -hmm. prior to the treatment to minimize uh, the chances that they're going to have a flare-up of their asthma. That's a good point. Uh, the other thing that's been done, and it's kind of uh, everything else is, is not working so well, uh, to, a little, something else to throw in the fire uh, is uh, mag sulfate. There are some um, some data that suggest that in a refractory patient that, that there is some bronchodilating benefits. Probably in the routine chronic asthmatic day-to-day -day flare-up, it's not going to be beneficial in a patient who is crashing. Maybe want to consider giving it. Uh, it's usually uh, 1.2 to 2 grams over 20 minutes uh, mm -hmm. uh, IV, uh, and it may be helpful in a patient who's got refractory bronchospasm. Right. I don't think I would ever think about giving myxelfed in the heat of the moment. <laughs> yeah, and, and again, it's, it's one of those things where they've got ongoing uh, bronchospasm and, mm -hmm. and they're not looking good. Um, yeah. Then uh, would would certainly consider it. Okay. Well, thank you so much for a thorough strategy that could be extremely helpful during classes in office or even in the operating room. And these things don't happen that often, but when they do, you best be ready to tackle them quickly, because not everyone will have everything handy and all the calculation that you got to go through. So if you have a patient that has the predisposing factors, you got to make sure you have all the things handy. Okay. I think we're ready for a case now. Here it goes. A uh, 28-year-old male with obesity with BMI of 34 and non-insulin-dependent diabetes was scheduled for elective open reduction and tonal fixation of mandible fracture. On exam, mouth opening was one finger breath with pain and his melanchthy classification was four. He had two previous surgeries without incident during childhood. He denies any history of atopy or drug allergy. Uh, chest auscultation was normal before anesthesia. He was induced with sufentanil and propofol. Tracheal intubation was performed with succinylcholine. After tracheal intubation, chest auscultation revealed a complete absence of bilateral breath sounds. Initial concentrations of entitled CO2 were low. Because an esophageal intubation was suspected, the patient was immediately extubated and mass ventilation was attempted. Mass ventilation was difficult to perform. The patient was reintubated easily, but ventilation remained impossible. Peak airway pressures were 35 to 40, whereas entitled CO2 uh, demonstrated a marked prolonged expiratory upstroke on the captopram. Therefore, bronchospasm was considered. At this point, he was noted to have truncal erythema and a rapid drop in arterial oxygen saturation to 55%, followed by arterial hypotension from 130 over 75 to 50 or 20, associated with a moderate tachycardia at 100 beats per minute. 
all of this happened in less than five minutes after the onset of bronchospasm. Four puffs of albirol from meter dose inhaler were discharged down the ED tube, and IV hydrocortisone 100 mg was administered. Concomitantly, titrated epinephrine of two IV boluses of 100 microgram each, along with 1,000 ml of lecter ringers, corrected cardiovascular disturbances. Arterial blood pressure came back up to 110 over 50. Heart rate was noted to be 110 beats per minute, and peak airway pressure was 27 to 29. And at the same time, ventilation became easier to perform along with the return of audible wheezing over both lung fields. After three to four minutes, the air entry improved and was equal bilaterally. Oxygen saturation improved to 99%, and the peak air pressure decreased to 18 to 20. Chest x-ray was subsequently performed. There was no pneumothorax. No additional supportive vasopressor therapy was required. The patient was ventilated with oxygen, nitrous, and isofluorine. Tracheal extubation was done when the patient was awake at the end of surgery. He continued to breathe 96% oxygen spontaneously, awoke and was transferred to post-anesthesia care unit, where his oxygen saturation on room air was 96% and his chest was clear. His further course and trend postoperatively was uneventful. That is the end of our case. And just so you know, this case is also a real case from anesthesia case report just modified a little bit to make it more relevant to us. It's a rather exciting set of events, huh? Yeah. Uh, besides the fact you started with a patient with a melon potty of four and uh, <laughs> uh, obese, which is all predisposed uh, to, a, to a difficult airway to start with, mm-hmm. and then to develop the uh, bronchospasm with airway collapse, and, mm-hmm. and the fact that the patient was able to be reintubated uh, is... Uh, fortunate. Uh, so, you know, in this patient, the bronchospasm, you know, the fact that we had cardiovascular mm-hmm. collapse to, to go along with, we started to see the blood pressure tank out, then uh, that suddenly changes my pathway from this is just a bronchospasm to this is anaphylactoid or mm-hmm. anaphylactic type reaction. And so um, certainly getting control of the airway is important. So mm-hmm. reintubating the patient was, was important. Delivering uh, to agonist is the first thought, but once this became the cardiovascular part of this became clear, mm-hmm. this patient needed epinephrine. And so, uh, giving the IV, although some folks would say giving the IV is, is a little more risky, you know, it's going to work quicker. So, that supported the blood pressure or uh, allowed the blood pressure to mm-hmm. uh, come back up uh, along with fluid boluses. And so we're now managing an allergic reaction, basically. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the question becomes, um, what was the patient allergic to? Uh, right. And was this truly an allergic reaction? Was it a uh, an anaphylactoid-type reaction? Right. Uh, but, uh, it certainly uh, had the potential of a, of a disastrous consequence uh, based on the, the fact that the blood pressure was dropping to a critical level and without uh, recovery, mm-hmm. maybe starting CPR. And so we want to get the pressure up. We want to uh, manage the anaphylaxis. And the thing that we need for that is mm-hmm. going to be... Right. And also the fact that he was obese. I mean, he could be uh, could have asthma, COPD. We don't know. Sure. And the fact that uh, he developed an allergic reaction is something that could happen in any patient. Mm-hmm. Uh, my one experience was in a young, healthy male. As the case progressed, uh, started to get a little bit of wheezing. 
Uh, mm -hmm. And it became a little tachycardic, and then the blood pressure started to drop back to a critical level, right. uh, and then all of a sudden developed high. And as soon as it developed highs, we gave mm -hmm. them a little IV uh, epinephrine. Uh, highs immediately, almost immediately went away. Mm -hmm. uh, blood pressure improved, wheezing stopped. And, uh, so we, we sent the patient on to uh, be evaluated and worked up for, mm -hmm. for, for anaphylaxis. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And also, some of the pharmacologic agents that we use, such as succinylcholine, could also be an agent that causes. Sure, if, um, if you look at intraoperative um, uh, anaphylactic reactions, you think about uh, uh, we think about antibiotics, but probably there's a higher incidence with muscle relaxants uh, causing mm -hmm. anaphylaxis in the OR. But certainly antibiotics, some of the uh, right. colloid solutions, patients can develop anaphylaxis. Blood products uh, mm -hmm. certainly can develop. A reaction and, and a flaky type reaction to blood products. So, mm -hmm. uh, so all things to keep in mind. So, if you're if you've got antibiotics running in, you've got blood products running in, mm -hmm. and the patient develops this type of reaction, first thing you want to do is disconnect those uh, lines. Yeah. Uh, start uh, your, your ABCs, airway mm -hmm. management. Your get the epinephrine on board to help with your circulation uh, and breathe for the patient as needed. Mm -hmm. So, going back to the case, what are some of the things you would have done differently, or things to do to prevent this. Well, again, if this is a patient without a history of, um, of, of breathing disorders, you know, mm -hmm. maybe a better history uh, if this were just a, 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 a bronchospasm type case, but this would be an, a, an allergic reaction. I think that part of it you can't really predict unless mm -hmm. you, there's a history of prior exposure. If this is somebody who has a, a strong family history of allergy, mm -hmm. if he's got multiple allergies, if this, then you start thinking about um, uh, uh, do you pre-treat this patient? Uh, if this were mm -hmm. just somebody who came in and had some asthma who was obese, then mm -hmm. I would pre-treat this patient uh, prior to anesthesia. I would probably pre-treat some steroids up front maybe. And anticipate that this could uh, develop into a bronchospasm type reaction because we have a patient with reactive airway. Mm -hmm. May think about using ketamine or may think about using uh, going to one of the inhalational agents early uh, that has bronchodilating properties. Again, with that drop in blood pressure, that's the thing that, that changes the, the whole uh, course right. of how you manage this, folks. But if, if we didn't have that drop of blood pressure, mm -hmm. then thinking about uh, if it's somebody who has a history of allergic or a, a bronchospasm, a bronchospastic disease such as mm -hmm. asthma, COPD, then I'm going to think about uh, is this patient medically optimized? Mm -hmm. uh, take a look at their health history as far as if they use a rescue inhaler, how often are they using a rescue inhaler, mm -hmm. how many canisters are they going through in a month, are they, mm -hmm. has their frequency increased, uh, has their uh, incidence of wheezing increased, uh, Exercise dollars decreased. Recent trip to the ER. Right. Uh, recent uh, history of having to be intubated. Mm -hmm. you know, patient has to be intubated uh, to manage uh, bronchospastic disease. There's a patient who's got some fairly Severe, significant right. disease. Uh, so those are all things that look at. Is this getting worse in patients who are elective procedures? If it's uh, an asthmatic patient, is it seasonal or environment? Certain times of the year where their asthma is mm -hmm. worse. You know, if it's spring and fall, you do. Elective stuff, winter and summer, or and, and you sort of manage your, your mm -hmm. elective stuff around their schedule of when their disease is, is the worst. Mm -hmm. uh, and having a high index of suspicion uh, as you're inducing uh, a patient and maintaining the patient under anesthesia uh, with asthmatics, uh, you know, do you do LNA versus a, uh, uh, a, a 
into drinking and debation. Mm-hmm. There's one camp that would say, yeah, it probably makes some sense not to put a foreign body in the airway. Mm-hmm. Uh, another camp would say, you know, we want to make sure that we have good control, even with a uh, uh, an LMA. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you put an LMA that you can put a nasal uh, pharyngeal tube or a, a, a nasal gastric tube to evacuate the stomach to make sure mm-hmm. that you don't have aspiration uh, right. around the LMA? Because that's certainly one of the risks with an LMA. Mm-hmm. Somebody mm-hmm. does bronchospasm, and you're trying to breathe for them, you're going to pump a lot of uh, right. air down into their stomach or around that LMA. Mm-hmm. So you run the risk that uh, they're going to have gastric distension, which may further aggravate things. So. Uh, so you, you just you weigh the, the mm-hmm. benefits and risk uh, in the management of each patient. Do you have to worry about any long-term sequelae with um, bronchospasm like you do with laryngospasm? Well, I mean, certainly even with anaphylaxis, uh, mm-hmm. uh, patients uh, can recrudesce, and, and so duration of your epinephrine is very limited. Whatever that allergen exposure can mm-hmm. be pro- prolonged, they can get better, and then they can they can get worse again. So uh, at least uh, you need to be aware of that. Uh, patients with bronchospastic disease, is this a flare-up of their asthma? Is this mm-hmm. just a, a single one-time incidence because they're a little light? We put a foreign body in their airway. Uh, probably less of an issue, but, but certainly a concern. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Do you have any last-minute things you want to talk about? Well, I think I think with with all of this, uh, good patient evaluation uh, mm-hmm. is critical uh, when we're evaluating patients uh, preoperatively, especially patients who give a history of uh, bronchospastic disease. You know, how well are they managed? Are they stable with their current regimen? Even if they are stable, there's still an right. increased risk, and there are other factors. Just because they were clear, we auscultated them at their consult visit. That may not make any difference if they come in. There was a, I, I heard a speaker once say, never put a patient to sleep who's, who's wheezing. Uh, and that's kind of my rule too. If they're wheezing when they mm-hmm. come in, and I tell them at the consult, you know, if you're wheezing, then uh, right. we'll postpone your surgery. It's better to, I think that's a good rule. Uh, yeah. to fight another day. And, uh, so I warn them ahead of time. So there's no, uh, no discussion that, uh, you know, G-Valley mm-hmm. took off work. And, <laughs> Uh, so we want to do what's safe. Right. I mean, prevention is the best medicine. Absolutely. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining us again today. I think we had another wonderful discussion on thank you. anesthesia complications for oral surgeons. If you liked our talks, please like us on Facebook and Instagram on our page at OralMaxFax, O-R-A-L-M-A-X-F-A-X. And also give us five-star reviews so we can bring you more interesting talks. Stay tuned, and we'll see you next time.